0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. Now, if you were to come up to me this week and tell me, you know what, I don't know if an episode on incredibly strange wrestling is for me. I would say, well, hold on a second there, pal. Did you listen to the episode? Well, don't go judging a book by its cover or a podcast by its topic because let me tell you something. This is going to be the best episode you've ever heard. Uh, and i'm telling you that because not not just because i happen to be a pro wrestling fan but i think that this is an incredibly unique story not to mention incredibly strange uh, and it's told by one bob calhoun who was formerly count dante of incredibly strange wrestling which was an indie promotion that really saw its height right around the mid to late 90s uh, right when when pro wrestling was hitting its golden age of popularity, and it wasn't just a cult following. I mean, this was, pro wrestling was something that was in everyone's household. It was, the, the pro wrestlers were household names. It was in the national zeitgeist. And this is a time when this particular indie organization really saw its peak. And I, I can't do it any justice explaining it. I can really just give you the outline, but the man, the myth, the master of incredibly strange wrestling is one Bob Calhoun, and he outlines the exploits of his time as Count Donald. Dante in Incredibly Strange Wrestling and his book Beer, Blood, and Cornmeal. Uh, this is very exciting. Let's jump right in with Bob Calhoun. Bob, thank you so much for being on the show today. One of the things I always like to ask is what people like to be called. And I think you've got some great I've got some great little nicknames for you. Uh, you know, I got Bob, Robert, Big Bobby C, Nor Calhoun. Do you still go by Count Dante? Do you like any of these or do you go by anything like that?
1: Uh just just Bob Bob is fine. Uh Count Dante. Uh,
0: retired to write his memoirs. So, <laughs> no more, no more Count Dante. That's a shame, man. Um, you know, I got to tell you, I'm very excited about this because this interview is really a confluence of some pretty cool kind of events. Uh, you, I kind of stumbled across a book that you have coming out called The Murders That Made Us, which is about crime in early San Francisco, which we're going to do an interview on that later. But I saw that you wrote this book on pro wrestling called. Uh, Beer, Blood, and Cornmeal, and given my love of pro wrestling, I could not resist asking you uh, to discuss this great book, which, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it came out in 2008. It references the late 90s, and you talk about my space. So what I'm trying to say is this book was written at a very specific point in time, the golden age of pro wrestling. And you have such an interesting journey with this book because you were there at a time in underground wrestling when it was king. So I'm very excited to talk about this with you. Um, so I don't know how, how looking back, you know, you mentioned before off camera that, that this is a book that you wrote a while ago, an experience you had 25 years ago. Give me some of your impressions looking back. How does it feel?
1: You know, sometimes uh, I'll mention that like I saw, you know, in the 80s, you know, before Incredibly Strange Wrestling, before I was involved in it, you know, when I was a teenager, I saw like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys in Palo Alto, which Palo Alto is one of the kind of shishiest parts of – Silicon Valley, one of the most affluent parts, like, you know, it went, you know, you're kind of, you know, to to use an ugly, potentially ugly phrase, you're, you're kind of slumming it there to drive a mere BMW, you know? Um, Yeah, it's, (laughs) But I mean, when I tell somebody younger, like some younger punk kid that I saw, like these kind of, you know, seminal hardcore punk bands in that place, they, they think I'm joking, that I'm lying, that I made it up, that their idea that this ever happened there was ever allowed to happen. And that, that very, very affluent place is just beyond them, you know? And it's like, well, there was a time when Stanford uh, was like more of a college town, mm-hmm. but not to go too far into that analogy. It, it is, It feels more and more kind of incredibly strange wrestling somehow feels more and more strange to me that that, you know, but I I think that stuff is always going on, like just weird underground entertainment or or kind of bizarre nightclub acts and that they if it wasn't for COVID, there would be some version of it that I'm just too old to know about.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: That there's a tendency for, for you know, I'm an old timer now, I guess, you know, to act like that was the ultimate thing. But uh, writing the newer book on a, kind of a uh, journey through San Francisco history through crime, you just find all kinds of weird shit happening. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. it's nothing new. It's nothing old, I guess. Uh, um, and there there is a kind of newer version of Incredibly Strange Wrestling, which we're way jumping the gun. But how how do I look back at it? It's... I mean, it it does seem like just being in the ring and people brought corn tortillas to throw at us while we wrestled and while I was announcing and and being in the ring fighting a guy with in a Sasquatch suit while people are throwing food at me. uh, It seems very, very dreamlike.
0: You know, it does see
1: that that was part of the appeal to it is you you would work these day jobs You know, like temp jobs, you know, filing books in a law library or something or whatever job you could get. Um... And you just kind of like this, it offered an escape, not just for the audience, but for the performers that, you know, I was Count Dante and I had a success seminar. I was Dante of Nazareth would drag a cross into the ring mm-hmm. and fight a guy in a lion suit while Flamius Caesar in a Roman <laughs> uh, Roman uh, centurion outfit kind of was the manager of the lion and that you could stage these things. Um, one aspect of pro wrestling, it's like a punk rock pro wrestling or not whether it's like very mainstream wrestling like WWE, which is pretty freaking strange, um, as it is, uh, is that it it does alter reality. Because, yeah, it's like it's a work. um, You know who's going to win. But the audience reaction is always like the audience, even if they know it's they in their mind, it's quote unquote fake or whatever. They react to it as if it's a real thing. And it it bends reality in a way I don't think, you know, I've done other forms of theater. I've played in bands forever. I've done actual plays where you're doing the same play and memorize lines and you're doing that every night. I've done student films or experimental films or whatever. But pro wrestling warps reality in a way that no other form of sports or entertainment or sports entertainment does. It creates, in that moment, you are in an alternate reality when you are either seeing or participating in a pro wrestling show.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it completely. I mean, that's why I fell in love with pro wrestling. And it's kind of interesting because there is a spectrum of suspension of disbelief. You know, the old AWA stuff, the Southern wrestling is, you know, it's not ECW violent. It's not, it's not, it's, you know, it's not parody violent in a way. Um, But it's still, it's very realistic. People get cracked over the head. They bleed. Um, It looks like a fight. You know, it looks like two people fighting. There's not a lot of style to it. And then you go to like Lucha Libre wrestling, which is kind of what ISW was pretending to be and that's very choreographed, very stylized, uh very a lot of gymnastics, high flying, which is very different. And then you've got is you know, and then you've got people like ISW like the group you were involved with which is almost taking that to the next level, you know. I mean, it's crazy characters, crazy storylines, uh wild wrestling. So you guys were kind of on the far end of the spectrum. And you know, I kind of want. How would you describe incredibly strange wrestling? You know, being in it. What you guys were trying to do uh, to someone who'd never, who's never seen the federation before. How would you describe what went on there?
1: Well, it was, it was, it was, um, it was like one half punk rock, one half wrestling, and we had bands at the shows. So, like, you know, it was like kind of the WWF's rock and wrestling connection, but carried to a, a greater extreme. <laughs> okay. So there would be like right. uh, a set way. by a band, yeah. then a set of wrestling, then another set by a band and then another set of wrestling. And then the headliner would be playing, um, you know, like no effects or be first in the gimme gimme's or we had Mike Watt do a show. Um, it, you know, that, that, that was going on until, you know, in the club days before we moved up to the film That would be going on at like 2 a.m., you know, like last calls already happened and the headlining act is on and there's just tortillas all over. Uh, The venue was called the Transmission Theater, which used to be a transmission shop in south of Market. And, you know, you just have this overwhelming smell of corn tortilla slush mixed with beer and whiskey and sweat And yeah, there there'd be some really really
0: loud band playing. Um, (laughs) sounds Sounds lovely. You're painting such a beautiful picture here, Bob. Yeah, was,
1: uh, you know, uh, you know, like like that. You know, the the club that it was in that it started out in the the it was the Transmission Theater, and it was uh, basically there was this club called the Paradise Lounge, and they bought the transmission repair shop next to them, and so there was a door that between them. So. It felt kind, you know. So they, it was all opened up. So if you walked, around, I didn't get a lot of chances to do this because I was busy working on the show. But if you walked around, like before I was involved in it, I was at the show. It felt like Tom Sawyer's Island in Disneyland, where you're just going into all these yeah. compartments <laughs> where there's different stuff going on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's a great way to describe it. Okay. Yeah,
1: and that point. This is like the mid nineteen nineties, so the the kind of tech takeover of San Francisco is only really starting. San Francisco is still this kind of crazy place with a kind of hippie hangover from the sixties still going on. Um, there's lots of anarchists around, and and a lot of you know both good and bad things are still in the civic memory. Um, I kind of wonder how much incredibly strange wrestling was influenced by drag shows like, hmm. you know, we had um, gay and LGBTQ performers definitely in ISW, but it really most of us were straight, cisgender, whatever people, uh, you know, right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And uh, but I still think that's just in the the DNA of San Francisco at that time or maybe at any time or, you know, all these crazy shows like the Cockettes, like you might not have ever seen it or known about it, but it's still kind of in the air.
0: You know, you make a good point because it seems like of all the places that would be. You know a gestation location for ISW. San Francisco is it. If you're going to have incredibly strange wrestling, San Francisco is the place where you're going to have it because you guys really capitalized on that. I mean, you know, I was just writing down some of my favorite characters from ISW, and you know, the the Ku Klux Clown and Harley Racist were obviously your bad guys in the show. But you had Uncle Nambla, the Chemo Kid, Homo Loco. Macho Sasquatcho who was a big Sasquatch I mean this is this is crazy wild but also in some ways you know Uncle Nambla I mean South Park you know famously did a great episode on Nambla that was really in the zeitgeist at the time and I feel like you guys capitalized on a lot of that and gave it a San Francisco spin is kind of how it feels to me
1: Yeah, I was for better or worse. I was Uncle Nambla. That was like, oh, you were Uncle Nambla. I mean, a lot of these. (laughs) I I was Uncle Nambla. I don't think you mentioned that in the book. (laughs) No, I mentioned it. Did you? Oh wow! Because there's (laughs) because that was a that was a show. We were kind of in the wilderness for a while, so it was in a show in a civic, odd, a civic kind of ballroom that we rented out that the promoter rented out. And uh, you know, one thing about ISW2 is there was no barricade separating the ring from the fans, and the fans were really drunk because basically in a nightclub act, and so um. The fans are right up there. So when wrestlers are diving out of the ring, they're falling into fans. It's like a really, really violent stage dive and stuff. Wow. And um, so I did the Uncle Nambla show, and I wrestled uh, little Timmy, who was a, one of our better workers in pro wrestling parlance. He could really do – like he was a gymnast as a kid, and he could do a lot of stuff. And he was like – I think he was too young to get in the club still. Like he's probably 18 or 19, but mm. I mean – you Know to a bunch of drunks in their 20s and 30s and 40s, he looked like he was 12.
0: Sure, and <laughs> gotta pass him off for storyline purposes, right? yeah. And so, we did this. You know, he came
1: out in the Angus Young schoolboy outfit, and <laughs> I wrestled it. I wore, you know, all 340 pounds of me sure. or 300 pounds back. Then I was maybe a svelte 320. <laughs> sure, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I wore hot pants. And like I found these hot pants at a thrift store and they were just like you would do, when you would go through thrift stores back doing the wrestling show and you find any kind of weird alpha, weird piece of clothing you'd buy it cuz you know you'd be able to use it someday. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I had these hot pants and I what was the mask it was this luchador it was just like I used some other luchador's mask which talk about cultural appropriation. I forget what his name was, but he had this kind of clown John Wayne Gacy type clown kind of look. Oh wow. Okay. So I just used that. That's all I wore. You know, and I'm all flabby and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a sculpted Adonis by any means. And so we're doing this match and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, you know, it's just me kind of groping him and he does some good moves. You know, he does some good off the ropes, off the top rope stuff at sure, the yeah. drop kicks and, and there were these, uh, Pacific Islander guys, these like Samoan or Tongan guys, right. And they were like, they wanted to get in the ring to, to, to to kick my ass
0: audience members you are saying here, these were not yeah, part of the they show
1: were just out. Mm-hmm. They were right there and they were, there was the ring steps. They were on the ring steps and I'm like kind of side-eyeing them. And I'm like, I'm going to be killed if these guys actually get through the ropes. And I'm like, one of the other wrestlers was the ref Jose was refing that match. And I'm like, uh, he could maybe stave these guys off for a little bit, but I, it's not going to be. <laughs> Jeez. You know, I'm really getting kind of afraid. I'm like, I sucked in the ring. I mean, I'm big and I have a look, but I sucked in the ring. So I was, uh, and I also had a sense that the audience really didn't want a long match, mm-hmm. that they wanted to just see a cavalcade of weird characters coming out. Right. And so I believed that an ISW match should never be longer than five minutes. And that probably saved all of us. Um, yeah, and so like, the big finish of that match was I pulled chloroform, quote-unquote chloroform, out of my <laughs> pants, yeah. like a rag chloroform, and I put little Timmy out and I drag him out of the ring. You know, I just drag him out, sure. and nothing happened, Jesus. but those guys still really, I mean, they know it's just a show, but they they really wanted to kill me, and, and rightfully so. I mean...
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> talk about giving into it me. to it. Well, so So that raises a lot of questions for me, because a yeah, guy like I'm a, I'm a fan of pro wrestling I just I always have been but it sounds like the pro wrestling was almost that was the sideshow to the to the bands being played. I mean it seems like the priority was the bands the wrestling was more it was more like skits. It seemed like the the wrestling was more like, because, you know, you had like a whole, you got like a whole religious theme going on. You know, I think you were, um, you know, like you mentioned the, the Christian lions. I mean, you had a lot of people dressed up in animal outfits. It really seemed more like Saturday Night Live than you know, then Sunday night heat or something <laughs> uh,
1: well, for us. It was, and a lot of us weren't trained and there was almost a kind of punk rock disdain for training. Cause it <laughs> just seemed like the wrestling schools.
0: Well, I know I'll never understand punk rock is all I'm saying, but I'll, it's just, it's never appealed to yeah. me. I never understand. Well, it, but. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean, the wrestling schools. I mean, they were expensive, and and there's kind of a lot of indoctrination. And if you really just don't want to be, you know, if you don't have that hope of being in WWE or WCW, which right. was then, you know, there were other places to go back then, or ECW even. But we did have some really, really good workers from those schools, and like Mike Modest, who was in WCW, was was did some matches, and he had some cool characters.
0: And well, you had Spike and, Dudley and, uh, and Crash Holly. So I mean, you guys had some people come through there that were legit. Legitimate or at least wanted to be.
1: Yeah, and they were. And and there was always kind of a conflict. Like we could never really program for them like I think a w- indie worker now would totally do ISW angles. In fact, I know this cause I, I still talk to indie wrestlers and things and I still go to indie shows and there's a lot more openness about it. I think there was kind of like, even though like, like Mike modest came up with, you know, he was the border patrol and they would fight luchadors sure. and, and things. <laughs> yeah. And, and those were, those were pretty much probably the best matches of the ISW, the ISW ever saw, but everybody was too drunk to remember them. Sure. Um, <laughs> (laughs) uh yeah but you know it's like we always kind of wanted like you know we could come up with all these kind of cool ideas and it would be cooler to have indie workers do them but you know they aren't really getting paid that much either so they had their stuff that they wanted to do like i look back at it a lot more kindly then it was a conflict you know it's like it's kind of like Prince and Morris Day in the Time and Purple Rain or something where you're battling for control of this nightclub scene. <laughs> but <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: well, <laughs> no. because the thing that strikes me is when you say you're in the ring and you know, you're you're just a guy looking to have some fun. And we're gonna get into your story in a second as to why you were actually in ISW to begin with. But it strikes me that there wasn't any security. So for example, the parallel that I immediately think of is ECW, where the crowd was very close to the ring. There wasn't a lot of room between the wrestling ring and the crowd barricades, much smaller. And people would pull stuff out of the audience. You know, I mean, it was very, very stylized backyard wrestling. But people going to an ECW show wanted to see a wrestling match and were wrestling fans. And I feel like people coming to your shows wanted to see music and thought it was kind of cool to see wrestling, which then makes people, especially when a lot of alcohol is involved, makes people want to get involved in that show and having having the audience right up against the ring like you guys did that is a recipe for disaster so i mean did you guys have security did you have contingency plans in place did you have insurance what was going on in that respect
1: i think waivers were signed but um (laughs) don't quote me on that um i think audra the promoter definitely had to sign waivers i would hope so um yeah, yeah. Well, for her, but I mean, it's it's all water under the bridge now, or blood, or bourbon under the bridge, or, cornmeal. or beer sludge, cornmeal, cornmeal. Sludge. So yeah. yeah, something. It's uh, yeah. Um, there was there was the bar security. There were the bouncers, and I mean, they were some pretty tough customers. Okay. I mean, there was okay. one show I did, one show we did. With, um, I won't name any names. Uh, one show I, d- um, we did where I was wrestling Macho Squatcho and, uh, this friend of mine back then, Peter, he bought a $99 Chewbacca suit. And so that was Macho Squatcho. and we just wanted to have a Bigfoot character. He was the punching and Proto Hominid
0: from the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Love that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, uh,
1: you know, so he was the sympathetic character. Count Dante was an asshole. He wasn't sympathetic, and I was managed by this kind of local shock jock, Dennis Erectus, and we had this whole thing where I was going to, you know, he Dennis Erectus was going to come into the ring to hit the Sasquatch with a steel chair, and the Sasquatch was going to get out of the way and hit me, you know, mm-hmm. that old saw. That's yeah, yeah. But some somehow during this whole like. Terribly wrestled psychodrama. Some hippie kid got in the ring to save the Sasquatch. (laughs) Like, I have it, I still have it on videotape. I love it. Yeah, the hippie kid gets in the ring. Like and he's a hippie kid. Right. He's a hippie kid who went to see the show. Maybe he's peeking on acid or whatever, sure. ecstasy, whatever hippie kids were doing in 1998. Um, and he just—I don't know if he thought it was cute to get into the ring. You know, like, oh, I'm just going to do this. This is stupid. But I don't know. He was a hippie kid. I think we had this whole like kind of like Count Dante's going to buy you know this redwood forest and plow <laughs> it under and turn <laughs> it into condos for techies. That was the whole subplot of the match. Yeah, I love- I think the kid was just was just like, no way, we aren't gonna let that Sasquatch's natural habitat get developed yeah. by the evil count. Yeah. And so, um yeah, and and uh, I think the ref slugged him, the ref during that match. And I think uh I think the bouncers may have taken that kid into the back alley of the Paradise Lounge. Uh-oh. Um yeah, I don't know. Uh, that happened. People disappeared from the shows, so it was a different kind of
0: security. Well, that's—I mean—in some ways, that's really good though, because you guys are protected, and that's really what matters, you know. And people shouldn't yeah. be running into the well. ring and doing all that crap. I mean, you're, you're letting them throw things, and and I, and I do want to put a point here. I'm going to put some videos that you have on your on your YouTube channel up on the website. It is hard to really describe and undersell how many. I'm sorry, it's hard to oversell, I should say, how many corn tortillas and how much stuff is being thrown at you guys throughout the entire show. So, you've given them those liberties. Popping into the ring is not one you should allow.
1: Yeah, that that was where the line was drawn, but it was kind of more of a rough justice kind of thing. Sure. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, the wrestlers or or the bouncers were going to they finally had carp launched to 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 Eat the crap out of you if right. you if you cross that those ring ropes when you weren't supposed to. Right,
0: which is how it should be, but but that's how it exists now. I mean, I, I, I've watched a lot of shows and I've seen a lot of people jump over the security barricade, pop into the ring, and that is the last time you see them conscious for a while i mean they just you guys yeah. i mean they are swarmed by everyone the guys in the ring haul off i mean it's it's crazy but l- let's talk about we got to talk about Con- D- count dante here because count dante is not only a great character but he's got a lot of great storylines things that happen to you as count dante that i want to get into i'm excited to talk about but let's talk about the genesis how did you go from bob calhoun to to Count Dante, and how did that lead you to ISW in the first place? Because from what I understand, you started out as a front frontman for a punk band, and that's where the Count Dante came from. But then, how did you end up being, you know, a wrestler, and then later an announcer?
1: Well, well, Count Dante. I mean, it's a name I stole from se- this ad in seventies Marvel comics. Um, you know, he was this guy Count Dante, and he turns out he was like an Irish guy from from Chicago. But in the ads, he was kind of racially ambiguous. Like he had a penned on Afro and stuff because it was 1976. <laughs> yeah, right. And he, he claimed to have beaten the, the masters of Judo, Jiu-Jitsu, Karate, Kung Fu, Kenpo
0: in death matches. And so it was like, did he actually kill the people? What happened here? He was like Mortal Kombat before Mortal Kombat was there. He's like Sub-Zero. Lu Kang.
1: Yeah, I mean, he did. He is credited with doing some of the first MMA shows or promoting some of the first MMA shows. Oh, interesting! In the United States, I didn't know that. and um, so I'm just like looking to start kind of a kind of weird theme band. I always wanted to have like a kind of performance aspect to my band, so I kind of I stole this guy's uh, shtick. And recreated him as like this kind of late night infomercial Huckster, which is what he probably would have been had he still alive. See, this is like a little before like Yahoo as a search engine is just starting when I'm doing all this. So this idea, like I didn't know if he was still alive. I didn't know there was like I didn't have the thought that there would be a way to know this. It's like, here's an interview with him from saying really crazy shit from Black Belt in 1974. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and that's kind of it. Yeah, yeah, You know, that in the comic. Yeah, it's like and then old kind of old karate people telling me stuff about mm-hmm. him and uh you know then so i start doing this and then there's this you know you you put up the band website and you start doing things there might have even been a count dante geo city site for people really (laughs) wanting to walk through tech memory or angel fire um (laughs) angel fire flaming skulls gotta have flaming skulls (laughs) so i i started the band and i i had uh my friend ruby she made me these kind of karate gis or kimonos and I would go to these fabric discount fabric warehouses and buy you know the most outrageous like leopard print and sequin fabric that I could find and we'd make my outfits and then I made my poor bandmates wear uh karate gis or judo gis and they were the black dragon fighting society right because that was count dante's supposed organization so it's Count Dante (laughs) and the Black Dragon Fight Society (laughs) as Thor later said the longest band name ever
0: it's a great band name though I I actually love it I mean it's lifted completely which is my only beef with it but other than that it is a pretty cool (laughs) band name
1: I never expected to be doing it as long as I did but (laughs) see the problem with committing that much to something where you're making costumes for it and everything is that you kind of can't stop it's not like you could just do that for a year and then start something else, <laughs> right? Right
0: yeah. right. yeah.
1: So, so after I the band was running for a while, I did start to get like weird emails from like varying pretenders to the real Black Dragon Fighting Society. It turned out Count Dante died. Um, he not only um, let's get all this prologue out of the way about Count Dante. He he not only was this kind of kung fu huckster guy, but he had been a part of this, uh, what was then the largest cash heist robbery in the United States, which was the Purolator bank vault robbery. Purolator was an armored car company, or maybe it still is, and him, Count Dante, and some kind of like not so good fellas like robbed the place
0: his his black dragon fighting society the Dante thing the black dragon fighting society knocked off an armored car is what you're saying
1: they didn't rob the armored car they 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 boosted the vault of the company oh, where all okay. the cash went.
0: okay
1: <laughs> yeah it's, it's a little it sounds like a cooler when you think that him and a bunch of kung fu guys <laughs> you know stopped an armored car and used karate right like yes. and use their their death touch to, to rob the, the armored car. i would watch that. Movie. Like that's the, if we, were to, if we were to make the movie version, that's inspired by true events, yeah. that would be what happens. In yeah, it. yeah.
0: Yeah. That's amazing. You
1: know, he had been busted for like, there were these dojo wars and he had tried to like him. He was fighting with the green dragon dojo and he had been busted for drunkenly trying to, to st- attach sticks of dynamite to their dojo <laughs> and him and some of his, his, uh, martial arts friends stormed the dojo and one of them got killed because the dojo had all the, the green dragons had all these swords and spears <laughs> and pikes on their wall. So they killed one of the guys. Holy
0: cow. That's amazing. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. Nothing I could have imagined. Four Count is weirder than what he actually was.
0: Well you know what's funny what I love about that is is is, is Cobra Kai, the TV show that's on now, Cobra Kai, which I, I fell out of it after the second season. It because it got so ridiculous, hearing that story actually makes Cobra Kai feel reasonable. <laughs> I mean that is that is so silly that I mean there were real real dojo wars. I didn't think that existed. That's amazing.
1: No, no, yeah, that, that's probably why I stuck with Cobra Kai through the third season is <laughs> is knowing all. Of yeah, no
0: kidding. Um
1: that Yeah, it's you know, it doesn't seem that crazy to me. Um, and also going through ISW is like, yeah, you know, it's like this silly wrestling show. You're not making any money on it, but you're sticking with it because it's more exciting than your other life. Fair
0: enough. Yeah,
1: imagine that. So, so yeah, after, you know, I put up the website and the band's playing and I, I didn't think that anyone would know about this band outside of California or San Francisco, even that we would just do some, maybe go up to Portland or Seattle once in a while. And either we got an indie record deal or we didn't, and that, that would be it. So I, but you know, you put up the website and then they're putting up their websites and then you're getting cease and desist orders from the the keeper of the Count Dante Flame William Aguiar who I think was one of the guys in on the Purolator robbery <laughs> and he's out in Fall River Massachusetts threatening me but then there's this other guy Ashida Kim who claims to be the head of the Black Dragon Fighting Society t- emailing me to enlist my aid against them like this shit's <laughs> I mean most of it was virtual <laughs> but this shit's going on and, and they're wanting to sue me or kill me And I kind of stuck with it. Like I worked in law firms and was able to have a lawyer friend send them letters and got them to back off for a while.
0: Those aren't the people you want to run afoul of though. I mean, I know you studied Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but these guys are claiming to be in death matches. They sound like the hand from Daredevil. I mean, these guys, or, you know, the foot, the foot from, uh, which I just realized is a total ripoff, the foot from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, these guys sound serious.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a parody. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know.
1: Yeah, um, but yeah, no. I mean, it helped that they were far away. I mean, I think Ashida Kim was in Florida, and uh, and uh, Aguiar was in Fall River, Massachusetts. So it helped to be me, be brave that they were on the other
0: side of the continent. You're like the original keyboard warrior. <laughs> yeah,
1: we were all drafted into the keyboard yeah, army without yeah. even knowing.
0: We were doing that to ourselves, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this is this is pretty. I mean, this is a crazy story, though. I mean, because like you said, there's two fighting factions. They're fighting with each other. They're both fighting with you. But um, it seemed like Ashida Kim was more on your side, and he wrote a lot of books, including the X the X rated Dragon Lady um, and other books with Ninja in the title, which I thought was also a really fun detail of the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. You know, I mean, in my kind of, um, secondhand contact with him over the years, he's only gets nuttier and nuttier. Um, he was more on my side, but I think his claim to the throne was a little more specious or a lot more specious, but it's all kind of like, Nobody, Count Dante didn't leave any heirs or any heirs that he knew of. Nobody's really an heir to him. Right. Um. He died, and he may have even been poisoned. Wow. You know, he's in an unmarked. I visited his grave in Chicago. He's in an unmarked grave. Really? Uh, pop grave in Chicago, and I put, like, my Count Dante CD on it as a marker <laughs> for him. That's nice. Um, this guy, Floyd Webb, is making, he's been doing this for 15 years now. Poor Floyd. He might finally be found somebody to... give him the financing he needs. He's been doing a documentary on John Keehan, the original Count Dante. And Floyd's a Chicago filmmaker. He's one of the producers of uh, Daughters of the Dust. And he produced like the American Masters of uh, Nat King Cole, or was one of the producers of that. And plus other things. I mean, he's, he's a legit filmmaker and he remembers Count Dante. He, he, he said when he first started talking to me and because I'm a researcher and I've helped him find stuff and helped him with things, he said when he first started, Started like he he was surprised that the band guy was the most reasonable one Hmm. out of everybody he was trying to contact. He ended up getting into lawsuits with the Fall River faction, and the uh, Fair Use Project at Stanford University represented him because they were they were trying to hold him up for money or trying to sue his project, his documentary film, out of existence. (laughs) Wow! Yeah, so he he we won the case. I think the story his story you know if you're into the making of documentary films and how things can go wrong his story is is it maybe not as interesting as John Keehan and Count Dante's story but it's interesting it's definitely it's definitely interesting in and of itself
0: so is that beef squashed as a, you know as a, as a button to that i mean have you squashed the beef with the the Count Dante factions i haven't
1: really heard from them one of those guys tried to add me like the william william aguiar is is gone now too and he's probably the guy who had something to do with the pure later robbery and he was like dante's right hand man um and why dante ends up in fault river for a while um uh, which is a place you try to get out of and not go to he's gone his son tried to add me on facebook but i
0: decided to yeah was i don't a think that's so
1: great yeah that's no a great i'm like i'm going to, to- deny this one. But so I have this, you know, this kind of theme band with kind of violent martial arts themes. And it's this over, you know, this oversized personality and all the, the costumes. It's like, uh, Greg Brady with Johnny Bravo. I've got the threads <laughs> and there was this, this kind of bartender doorman, uh, fast Mike, not fat Mike of no effects. It was fast Mike with an S T, an extra S. Um, he looked like he was in the Ramones. He was, he had that kind of Ramones hair. Um, I think he's in, in Belgium or somewhere in Europe now. I don't know. But he was always like really into my band. Like there weren't a lot of people into this band, <laughs> but he was one of the guys who thought that we were cool. <laughs> cool. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And he was just like, you've got to do this incredibly strange wrestling thing, which had been kind of going on for a couple of years uh, out of the Paradise Lounge. It started evidently like August Ragon and Barry from the Hellies had been doing something. And Johnny Legend, who's kind of known, had been doing some kind of incredibly strange wrestling type things at car shows before that. But then with Audra, they got into the Paradise Lounge and Transmission, so they had a venue and they were able to do like monthly shows. And we and uh, so he was just like he was kind of on me about doing this, and and it, it made sense. And I kind of just wanted to do it, like oh well, you know, we were playing like a kind of sub level of nightclub, and you're always like. It's kind of funny. I'm not really thinking of doing national tours and arenas or anything. I'm thinking of just like getting better nightclub. Games, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> instead of the dive, it's like going up to a better class of dive. Um, <laughs> maybe. And that's my motivation. And so he gave me her phone number one day. You know, he was at uh, It was on Hate Street, and he gave me the her phone number. He wrote it down like this was. He was really gonna make this happen, like he was my agent or something. And and so I called and left a message for her. And I did my Count Dante. You know, this is Count Dante. I've defeated the. You know, I have defeated the masters of Jujitsu, Kenpo Karate, in death matches, yeah, yeah. and I will show you and the audience at incredibly strange wrestling my world's deadliest fighting secrets and Demac the Death Touch. <laughs> And she got back to me kind of laughing. Sure, sure. And you know, I had a tryout which was actually live. We didn't really do tryouts. But it's like, oh, we've got a slot for you and just go out there and do something. That was kind of you know, you would be kind of choosing up sides. It felt like dodgeball in grammar school, you know, like, hey, do you want to wrestle me? And for some reason I would get left with women. Um, you know, I don't know why the other creeps in ISW didn't want to wrestle the women, but that fell on me. And, you know, it would be, you know, I'd kind of Andy Kaufman it, which was a huge influence on, I think, a lot of us, uh, the cruiser and everybody, Andy Kaufman. And yeah, so I would do a handicap with two women and, you know uh they would they would beat me up and this seemed to entertain people so i kept coming back and then you know my arch nemesis was the poontangler and it was always like a paternity suit match between count dante and the poontangler who is the father of the poontanglers is he yeah you know, i deny it we would do all this kind of jerry springer type angles sure, yeah, yeah. Or maury povich type stuff like that stuff was just kind of you know, we were all in various stages of unemployment all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just sitting at home watching daytime TV too much in between temp jobs or in between job jobs. And this is like where we're getting a lot of our ideas for what we're going to do in the ring and we're going to parody this stuff that's just kind of ubiquitous at the time.
0: Yeah, those were some of I mean, I remember so my first job actually in entertainment was at Jerry Springer. And I remember the like the height of it. I, I'm from Chicago, and Jerry Springer at the time was in Chicago. So I, I mean, I remember you know the Springer versus Oprah wars, and I mean this was just such a phenomenon, you know. And and I love that you guys were, were doing that when you. So when you got into it, from what I understand in the book, you said that you were the Andre the Giant of the organization. I mean, you were six foot three, th- three hundred plus pounds. Uh, so you were really the giant there did you did you have a 15-year uh, undefeated streak, or were you... Uh...
1: No, I, I got defeated a lot. I mean, and when I won, people really didn't like it, because I was always fighting somebody more more outwardly entertaining or interesting than me. Uh, the Poontangler, or Macho Sasquacho, or sometimes El Homo Loco, which I only fought El Homo Loco once. I mean, you were gonna job if you fought El Homo Loco, because he was like our Hulk Hogan. Oh, well, wow. You know, it's San Francisco, that's like the most over character, the most popular character we had and uh, he was really drunk the night i fought him at the fillmore and so his whole strategy that match and he got to where he could work he was he got to i mean work a very very basic match um you know but he he was just drunkenly pummeled my nuts the whole five minutes (laughs) yelling at me and james hetfield was, uh, at ringside making derogatory remarks about, um, about gay people
0: to get heat or was he serious? I,
1: I, you know, I, I don't know where James is at now. I I don't know the man. I've talked to Kirk Hammett for stories and things, but, uh, let's just say, let's just you know, he's probably changed. I mean, there's those movies about all their therapy and stuff. There's a lot of, you know, he's a metal guy. There's a lot of anger, angry young. He was still an angry young man back then.
0: Despite the success of Metallica. Well, it's funny because James Hetfield and Jello Biafra are literally the only people I recognize from the music scene. Um, Because it's funny because, you know, Really quickly, I want to say before because I want to hear more about um, your your journey there but one of the funny things since you mentioned James Hetfield is I, I also want to say to people listening this book has a very strong musical narrative bend to it and the more I'm talking to, you, I realize music is really the driving force behind all of this um, but I want to tell you I know nothing about music. I've never been a part of a music scene. I don't really listen to underground music and it was so funny. Like listening to all of these obscure, to me obscure. They're probably not obscure to people listening, but the obscure bands and even the music genres. I mean, you mentioned trucker, trucker punk, psycho Billy, desert rock. Um, you even describe one as blending galloping torador music with surf rock sensibilities. I don't know what any of that means. Are those real things or did you make them up on the fly?
1: No, no, no. They they were real bands. I mean, they're probably still pretty obscure, most of them. And that was kind of a motivation for writing the book the way I wrote it. it incredibly strange wrestling is this outgrowth of the music scene. Um, more than it it's like a kind of it's like wrestling kind of infected a piece of the music scene. <laughs> and that's and, a great way to know, describe it. Yeah. And I mean, they are these like low budget things that are kind of going on in kind of weird venues, whether it's nightclubs or high school gyms or, you know, civic centers. Like they have the uh, indie wrestling and indie music have that in common. They are both indie in that way. And so it just kind of made sense that there would be this cross pollination and that that cross pollination still goes on today. There's a show called Hood Slam, which is out of Oakland, and it's in a music venue. And I have worked a few of their shows and they're, they're much more, I think, successful than ISW was or more prolific. And it was funny when I worked a few, they brought me in as an announcer and I think I did like seven shows and it was, that was weird because it was around 2012 maybe. But the thing about Hoodstam is it, it's much more of a wrestling show. the The fans are still right up against the ring. Nobody's throwing food though. And the characters are crazy, but they all come out of, they're all trained or 99% of them are trained and they're all actually top flight indie wrestlers. And I think I, I could be wrong, but I think like a lot of people in AEW kind of had gigs, you know, were, were brought in to work those shows of various times. So, so it, it's kind of weird. Like a, it's always, um I'm going to go way too far into philosophy speak, but it's always a Hegelian dialectic. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the same thing. There's indie wrestling. And that's the thesis. And then ISW is the antithesis. <laughs> and now like hood slam is the synthesis, <laughs> sure. you know, these two <laughs> diametrically opposed things have finally come together in hood slam. Wow. And it, it's nothing. You were either on the thesis or antithesis side. You never would have seen that coming, even though you should have. Uh, but it's not to say that hood slam is a, uh, Um, inspired by ISW or a copy of ISW. And like, I think a lot of people that did hood slam, some of them had read my book or were aware of it. There even are, there's like one holdout from the ISW days working with hood slam now, but it's not like they said, we got to bring back ISW. They, they did, they're doing their own thing, but I think it's in the air. It's like, like back to the cockettes and the drag shows, and, and the kind of LGBT theater and beach blanket Babylon, even, and all this stuff kind of running around San Francisco when we're doing ISW that's in the cultural DNA. Like how much of ISW is because of the hippie day acid tests, like at the Fillmore that Bill Graham was doing these crazy shows with all these bands and lights. And just this idea of doing these shows that have all this other kind of performance stuff going on within a rock show. Yeah. It's just something in the air, in the place, in the Bay Area. Yeah in the San Francisco, in San Francisco. So,
0: I mean, it definitely, it sounds like that. I mean, it sounds like something that came out of that scene and, you know, I don't want to say inevitable, but it seems like it almost in some ways, given what was going on, given what was going on in the music and given how popular wrestling was in, you know, the national zeitgeist, it seems like there would, it would, someone would find a way to incorporate Wrestling into punk rock or rock and roll or whatever, and it seems like that was it. Now, while you were there, so I want to get back to to your kind of journey in ISW because you were wrestling. You were wrestling. You know, mentioning wrestling women uh, weren't a great wrestler, but you eventually moved to doing announcing, where you excelled and were kind of became. That was really your creative. You know, you're almost like a, on a creative rocket to the top of ISW at that point. How did that kind of start and, and develop?
1: That actually kind of happened early on because like I said, it's all kind of catch as catch can in an ISW show. Hey, do you want to wrestle tonight? Uh, I don't have anybody to wrestle, you know? uh, (laughs) So there would be like, you know, Hey, can I announce? Oh yeah, sure. You know, go ahead. And I just, I kind of started doing that. Maybe my third show, maybe very early oh, wow. on that was quick. And, um, they had an announcer, they had various personalities kind of sit in on matches. So that was the thing. They would just have wrestlers kind of do the kind of color commentary stick and the heel re- announcing stick. Um, but they, after a while. Uh, we had this uh, res- this announcer, Alan Bolte, and he wrote for all those kind of pulpy wrestling magazines that were at 7-Eleven and smoke shops at the <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. He wrote for Pro Wrestling Illustrated and The Wrestler. He wrote for those, and he was also an announcer in the 70s at the Cow Palace. You know, for that regional Roy Shire wrestling. So he would announce, you know, Ray the Crippler Stevens and and, you know, Pepper Gomez and, you know, later on Roddy Piper when he was working that territory. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of paired with him and, you know, we we'd kind of give each other lanes. He would kind of give me some pointers on how to do it. And We kind of became the announce team. And, you know, even on some of the tour, tour shows, although he didn't really tour, uh, it was usually just up to me and whoever wanted to sit in to kind of do that. Um, sometimes I would, uh, I would, uh, co-announce on tour with the uh, promoter, Audra, which always kind of gave it a weird morning show sound. <laughs> I'm like, it sounds like like the morning show. zoo. <laughs> Yeah, just kind of the man-woman kind of talking kind of thing and kind of quipping at each other. Yeah, yeah.
0: If you were doing the announcing, it's a a lot different. When you watch a, a television version of a wrestling show, you have announcers, but they're almost closed circuit. They're announcing what's going on in the ring with absolutely no fan interaction. The fans can't hear them until they watch it on television. But you guys were doing announcing live to a very rowdy, raucous crowd. I mean, it must have been almost like... Improv stand up in a way because you guys had to be funny and entertain, but also call the match. That seems kind of difficult, but also could be very fun.
1: You know, I was, I did, you know, I also emceed Stinky's Peep Show, the home of the large and lovely go-go girls, which was promoted by the same person who did incredibly strange wrestling, and would have the same kinds of like these kind of burl, you know, kind of sub burlesque kind of <laughs> sub burlesque you <know>, uh, parodies, <laughs> kind of parodies of of sex uh-huh. shows almost, and. And like I could do this kind of banter with the audience and engage, you know, just kind of come up with funny stuff to say while weird stuff is going on and do this commentary yeah. over it. And I was really good at that. There's this movie with Warren Beatty from the 60s called Mickey One, where he is one of these burlesque comedians and he comes out and he like plays the piano and he does like kind of, you know, banter over these burlesque acts and or kind of cues them up and gets off the or sometimes talks through them, and I'm like, that's that's what I did, and that's what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to 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 be Patton Oswalt. There was this show in L. A. called Lucha Voom, which was a little more compartmentalized. It was wrestling, and then they had burlesque stuff, and and, and but they would just have these kind of famous comics um, do commentary over it, and you know, I, I learned early on, like, oh, you can't just kind of make fun of. Our show. This is your show. It's our show. And if we're trying to get something over, even as loony as it is, you still have to kind of go with it. You can't, you can't just kind of make fun of it apart from it. And that's what the standup tends to do with these mm-hmm. things. Right. You know, we're still trying to present our altered reality. So don't cut against that. If somebody hits a guy with a piece of styrofoam, you still, even though people are going to laugh at you for acting like it was a piece of solid metal, you still have to act like it's a piece of solid
0: metal. <laughs> right, yeah. Or at least make a joke that that can exist in the world without making fun of the situation and pulling the air out of the balloon, so to speak. Well,
1: I, I had codes that only, like, Friends of mine or people that I work with in the promotion knew where when two guys would be really gassed because they were like kind of drunk and out of shape or something and the match was particularly even by the low standards of ISW, it was failing. I would say it all comes down to cardiovascular
0: conditioning. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I had various little quips that the audience wouldn't necessarily know unless they had seen the pattern. If they they were you had to really be paying attention to know I was making making a sly comment about something. And then the wrestlers would kind of give me this "fuck you, Count Dante" look when I would say that. You
0: get in the ring here. (laughs) Yeah,
1: we put out a couple of videotapes or DVDs, like you know, and kind of like that would end up in record stores and things. And there was one where we were doing the live commentary. And the, me and Alan are like he's creeping up behind him. <laughs> <laughs> of course, everybody can hear this, but everybody in the rig is acting is still surprised sure. that stuff happens, even though we, yeah, yeah. There was that aspect yeah, to yeah. it, like, and this is one of the reviews of it. There was like a you know it got reviews and some like music sites and and kind of just weird video sites. Like, hey, there's this weird video out there, like. Yeah, the only person not aware the that that the other wrestler's creeping up on him is the guy who's being crept. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the guys in the yeah. ring—they're the only ones that are unaware that this is the ref and the other wrestler, the good guy wrestler, are the only ones aware that unaware that this is happening because the announcers are telling everybody and everybody can hear it. Well, it,
0: it's this weird junction between being both like a movie, which comes from theater, where you're watching something you're not participating in. And to a live show where the crowd is participating, like you are still putting on a show. So the crowd, while they're yelling, screaming, cheering, they're not taking part in the action of what's going on in the ring. And in some ways, you guys are more like a Greek chorus explaining what's going on in the ring. But what goes on inside the ring is its own universe in and of itself that can only be affected by other actors in that universe. And I think that sounds very strange and weird, but that is how wrestling works. The audience it can cheer and and sometimes you can break the fourth wall and talk to them. But in a sense, they don't know, you guys don't know. It's all its own little world. And I think in in a weird way, people understand that and accept that, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it was live television without the television. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the people putting on the show who weren't necessarily big wrestling fans, um, you know, like I don't think anybody like people were into putting on a wrestling show. I don't want to say that they weren't, But I don't think anybody had set out with their lives to do pro wrestling. Um, So that's where it's kind of unique. I think most people who get into pro wrestling are kind of born to it. They're raised in the industry like the Bret Hart or Vince McMahon or or they you know, that's they're just so into pro wrestling. That's the one thing they want to do where we're kind of like, oh, we can do this. You know, we have these rock shows and we have these uh, peep shows. Well, we could do a wrestling show, too. Right. It kind of. You know, um, I think me and I know the cruiser who I, I'm still friends with, uh, you know, we talk about wrestling for us. It was just another weird thing to do. Like, you know, we grew up with independent television and there's like a creature features host, a monster movie show, and there's dialing for dollars. And then there's the pro wrestling show. That's like a locally produced show. And we just saw it as like in the weird talk shows, like the Mori Povich kind of thing. We just saw it as weird TV programming mm-hmm. and not a sporting event.
0: Right. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah,
1: yeah, that's, that's, I never really thought of me and Alan as the Greek chorus, but we totally are, but yeah, the, you know, Audra promoting it and wanting in live announcing it's that, you know, there are some wrestling fans going to those shows, um, you know, that are also going to other indie wrestling shows and also going to mainstream wrestling shows. Um, but a lot of them are these casual fans that are going to see a nightclub act. Yeah, yeah. And the way they relate to pro wrestling is, oh, I watched it when I was a kid on in the 80s with Hulk Hogan. And that commentary is always there. So you take that away from them the way it is at a more traditional indie wrestling show even. And you don't have that. They They don't think of – it's somehow missing something.
0: Yeah. Them. No, I completely agree. I mean you have to have it. I just think it's interesting the way people kind of have to compartmentalize it to experience it in the proper way. Otherwise, it just seems silly. It does seem silly that you would say, Hey, sneaking up on him. And then, you know, the only guy who doesn't know is the guy in the ring. Well, because you're not living in the world and not operating by those rules. You know, there's, there's, there's rules, man, you got to be followed, I think. <laughs> you know, speaking of rules, there's one rule that is a constant throughout history, and that is what goes up must come down. Uh, I believe a man named Newton said that originally. So on the way down, As ISW is kind of losing steam, losing momentum. You know, it, it seems like it kind of went on a little too long. You know, it didn't quite take a nod from all the famous sitcoms that kind of went out on top. And it seems like in the book, the trajectory kind of culminates before you guys go on a big European tour, which in some ways kind of just defeated the last remnants of enthusiasm for ISW. Uh, And you were on that tour. So I'm curious, what did you think about that and, you know, kind of how everything ended for ISW? Yeah,
1: if we could have stopped at Warped, because... Warped is what what, warped is June, July, and into August of 2001. So we know what happens in September. Like if we could have just stopped there. We did homomania when we got home. It was our big homecoming. And if we could have just known enough to stop there. But the thing is, that kind of altering of reality that pro wrestling does is addictive. And uh, some of our guys went crazy. Like it makes sense when Roddy Piper writes about the sickness where people in pro wrestling go crazy. And it makes sense for them because they're actually earning a living and it may have made less sense for ISW wrestlers, including myself, to go crazy from it to varying degrees. Um, But it's that like, you know, you get to go be Count Dante. Or you get to go be El Homo Loco instead of just some guy at the bar, or some you know you you get the guy at the club, you get to be the Poontangler instead of somebody you know as a re- instead of a receptionist, and and you know it's always those things. It's almost like a cult, you know. There's always the salad days of a cult, a cult, you know, the People's Temple, another San Francisco thing. Which, by the way, the People's Temple itself, after the Jonestown massacre,
0: uh, wow.
1: was rented out by like uh, people uh, by punks and they booked punk shows there. So it kind of, and it was just down the street from the Fillmore. (laughs) So it all comes together in my weird thoughts on this and my next book, Murders That Made Us, which is a history of San Francisco through crime, including Jim Jones. Um, So he's uh, on my mind, unfortunately, but um, you know, there's the, good days of the cult where you seem like you're really doing something and really getting enlightened. And then the bad days start to happen and you keep thinking that it's just a, um, and I've read stuff from people who were in cults who say this, that they, they think it's just kind of, you know, it's just a kind of dip and that the good days will be back again and you're just hitting a rough patch. And so you stay in too long. And that's kind of the same way with me and incredibly strange wrestling It's like, wow, it was the hottest show in San Francisco for at least a couple of years there when I was involved in it and uh, involved with it. And you just think maybe that's going to come back. Maybe, maybe that's just going to come back. But what you don't really realize is that it's a generational thing. And, you know, unless you're just really good and, and can stay on long and cross generations, your generation's getting older and people are having kids and they're kind of dropping out of the scene. And it's, you know, unless you're really good at recycling and tapping into a new generation of, of club kids, it might be time for somebody else to pick up the reins of weird wrestling five years, ten years down the road, like Hood Slam did. And they're just gonna have a different voice and a different take on it. And they're still doing something somewhat similar, but they're going to to you know, speak to those people in their early twenties at that time and college students at that time that you've lost because everybody's 35, You <laughs> going on 45.
0: No, I, I think that's a great observation. And I also think that just entertaining is in some ways like a drug and it acts on your brain like a drug. Um, you know, Ric Flair is a perfect example, you know, and they call it living the gimmick, where you you are playing a person on TV and in pro wrestling, all, you know, reality's altered, and then you think you're that guy, and you're not really that guy. You just play him on television, and I think it does affect people's mindset. Um, but, you know, it's a wild ride. You know, <laughs> I think that's a, a dark but also very realistic, uh, a place rooted in reality to end this, because I think your book, I mean, people should read this. It is a great journey from the beginning to the end. Uh, beer, blood, and cornmeal, which is still available, I think. How can people get a hold of it if they want to read the story beginning to end?
1: You really, you're stuck with Amazon and Barnes and Noble. You could still order it through them and and any other kind of online book retailer. I, I mean, the book is sold it; it's still in print technically. ECW press still has a few copies left and they are distributed through those avenues so I mean either that or just be lucky to see it in a used bookstore when you can go into used bookstores again safely
0: I I love pro wrestling I am jealous that I wasn't able to to get into the scene it seems like something that would have been a lot of fun to do in my youth um but it's a very exciting story I recommend people read it and I gotta tell you this has been so much fun I'm gonna call you nor Calhoun because that's my favorite new nickname for you um Bob nor Calhoun thank Thank you so much for being on the show today.
1: Thanks so much, Daniel. Thank you. And I look forward to talking to you you again in
0: May. Yeah, me too, man. I'm looking forward to it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn Co. production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. If you like this show and you haven't subscribed already, first of all, what's wrong with you? Second of all... If there is something wrong with you, I've got the solution, and that is to go to fascinatingnouns.com, where you can find links to all of the places that Fascinating Nouns is available, including all the major podcasting platforms, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. You can find them all right there on the Fascinating Nouns webpage, along with links to our social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube, all right there on the bottom of the page. And at the top of the page, you can find links to every episode that we've ever done organized by episode number or by guest alphabetical order. It's all right there. FascinatingNouns.com. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.